You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hashtag no music, no intro. Ryan and I heard the request in terms of everyone wanted a Star Wars themed podcast, especially when all the the news uh, at Disney Investors Day of the multiple series that are going to be hitting Disney Plus soon. And I we have a commitment to our fans that if we're going to do a Star Wars podcast, it had to be done right. We couldn't just get anyone on it. Ryan and I can just talk about Star Wars for an hour, but that's boring. No one wants to hear that. So we wanted someone that is tied to the Star Wars universe. And so I don't know how it happened, but here we are. Uh, We were able to get Hal Hickle of, of Industrial Light and Magic on the podcast. He's currently worked on The Mandalorian. Uh, don't know if he's attached to the Book of Boba Fett yet. He's been connected to the Star Wars universe since pretty much sounds like the prequels in episode one. He's worked at Pixar. He He's the animation director of The Mandalorian. He's worked on Toy Story. I, I could go on, Hal. Like, if it, <laughs> I, I love this. Like, we will continue to throw out the accolades because you deserve them. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I, I'm happy to be here. But I, I, I'm a little concerned after all that buildup. And then you go, Hal Hickle. And people are like, who? Wait, what? <laughs> who? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully if they stick with it, they'll, they'll, they'll get something they, they like out of this. So I hope, I hope so. <laughs> I, I think our, our conversation is going to be exactly what they want. Um, and I'll, I'll start in terms of people are going to be like, like, how did you guys even get how to come on the show and to me it all and i'm going to do a segue it all it's about shooting your shot in life like you have to take chance you have to shoot your shot so all i did here i am just a guy on twitter i've been following how for a couple of months now when i realized he was the animation director of the mandalorian i was like what well oh, that's an instant follow and <laughs> It, I just said, I got to find a way to get Hal on the show. And Hal was like, what's your podcast about? And here we are. Let I want to segue into you writing a letter to, I don't know exactly who you wrote it to, that your ideas of the sequel, the sequel to episode four, um, and your ideas getting rejected. And is the story true that you had that letter, that, you, that rejection letter, like you had that in your office in terms of, like, is it motivation? Like that story, I love that story. It's just, okay. I love it. 
Yeah, that's a that's a shooting your shot. Although that one didn't pay off at the time, but <laughs> I'll, I'll follow it up with another one though that did. But I'll tell that story first because you asked. Um, yeah, so um, Star Wars comes out in '77. I'm 13 years old. I'm already making little Super 8 films, so I was already interested in film and, and um, stop motion, like Ray Harryhausen kind of stuff. And Star Wars comes out and blows my mind and gets me interested in all different areas of visual effects. And uh, so, you know, a few months after it comes out, or I don't know, later that year, whenever they announced in the in the media that uh, they were going to make a sequel, I'm like, well, I've got an idea for a sequel. You know, 13 year old me living in a farm in Colorado, cattle ranch in Colorado. So I dash off a, a letter and I guess I sent it to somehow or other, I found the address for Lucasfilm and their office at that time was in LA. Um, and I sent it there and I had, you know, it was a, it was an impassioned, a 13 year old's impassioned plea to please include me in some fashion in this next film, I'll, I'll do anything. <laughs> and, here's my, and here's my big idea for the film, which was, you know, some terrible hokey but, you know, wonderful 13-year-old's idea of, of uh, what the film should be. and So I, your yeah. idea wasn't better than Empire, Empire Strikes Back? Close. It was really close, I think, probably. But no, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible. And, uh, uh, but so I got a, a nice letter back uh, typed up. And at the time, it was a little fresh, uh, a little bit of a letdown because it was, it was kind. But, you know, it said the sort of things that now I understand, like... Um, that they hadn't read my story idea, but they had people working on it. Now, of course, now I know that <laughs> entities like that don't take outside sub uh, submissions because, or, and read them because they then get sued by all kinds of people saying that they ripped off their story. So um, oh. it's to protect themselves. I didn't get that at the time, but anyway, so, but they also wrote that, you know, getting into Hollywood takes a combination of talent and luck. And, and I think it said an, and an agent <laughs> and, um, <laughs> So I held on to the letter just because, you know, I certainly wasn't going to, even though I was a little let down, I wasn't going to toss it. But then as the years passed, I started to realize how cool it was. For one thing, it was on this awesome Ralph McQuarrie letterhead, designed letterhead, and Ralph McQuarrie designed a lot of the look of the original Star Wars films. Um, wow. And then as well, it was typed up and signed by Bunny Alsop. And Bunny Alsop was Kurt, uh, Gary Kurtz's uh, secretary. And Gary Kurtz was the producer of Star Wars. And I... Right. You know, later as I, as I got some perspective, I was kind of like, what on earth was the secretary of the producer of the film doing answering random fan mail? Because they must have been getting truckloads of this mail, right, by this point. And um, so, you know, that just made me kind of love the letter, even as years went on. And then, you know, years later, I was actually working at ILM, working on Phantom Menace, and we had a big... Um, uh, breakfast to, to celebrate the wrap of the project. We finished it, and George was there, and so one thing, you know, somebody would never do during production, obviously, while we're all just working and making the movie would be to ask George for an autograph or anything like that. That's just not done. But at the breakfast, it seemed kind of okay. And so people kind of started sheepishly coming up with posters and things and asking George to sign them in a little line form. And he was super gracious and he's sitting at a table signing them. And so Rob Coleman, who was my supervisor at the time, uh, Rob was the animation director on all three of the prequels. And he, I was an animator. And so he was my my boss and he had seen the letter because I had it framed behind my desk at, at ILM because by that time it was such a prized possession of mine. And um, he goes, go get the letter and, and show it to George. I'm like, no, no, no. He's like, no, go, go, get it, go get it. So I went to my office and took it out of the frame and brought it back to George and he looked at it and he kind of chuckled and he underlined 
talent and luck and wrote you have it and signed his name so it was like a big awesome. you know closing awesome. of the circle now but your original question was about taking your shot so that was a case where taking that particular shot didn't lead me to ilm i mean right. it was part of my path to get there but it didn't result in me getting getting there but years later uh i was working i was doing stop motion animation at a studio in portland oregon called will Vinton studios which is now um leica right they did kubo and the two strings and um, oh, love Kubo. Fox Trolls and Paranorman. But back then, they, the big deal was in, in the, this is the late 80s, early 90s, um, was the California Raisins, which were this crazy sort of cultural blip on the radar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So we were doing clay animation, we were doing that stuff. And, but I still had my eye on one day, hopefully, landing at ILM. <clears throat> and the guy that owned the company, along with some other folks in Portland, had created a creative conference that was brand new. It was, the, that, it was their first year having it. And one of the guests that was going to come and speak at this conference was Dennis Murin. And if you don't know who Dennis Murin is, he's um, sort of the, he's our, uh, he's been a visual effects supervisor at ILM since it began in 75. And he's won more Oscars than any living person. He's got, I think, eight of them um, for visual effects. And he's just a wonderful guy. And at that point in time, for me, he was, one of the pantheon of visual effects gods, you know, you had Ray Harryhausen, you had Dennis and, and, and some other folks, Phil Tippett and a few others. And so I told my boss, I'm like, you got to introduce me to Dennis. You've got to introduce me to him. And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. No problem. So he did. And, and I chatted Dennis up and then, and at the end of the conference, there was a big party for attendees and speakers both. And I of course found Dennis in the crowd. <laughs> and so this was part two of me taking my shot. I, I was chatting up Dennis and he mentioned that um, he, he had wanted to get a tour of, of that studio that I worked for in Portland because Dennis himself had started out doing stop motion. And he said, but Will was, you know, their schedules didn't line up and it didn't look like it was going to work out. And I stuck my hand up and I was like, I'll, I'll give you a tour. No problem. <laughs> so he and his wife and his son came to, Island, uh, to Will Vinton's the next day. It was a Sunday. And I gave him the tour and the spiel and everything. And he, um, he was great. He urged me to keep in touch with him and he became kind of a mentor for me and an encourager um, for the next several years between that point in time, which was around 90, probably 1990 and 1996 when I eventually ended up working at ILM. So that was me taking my shot in that moment and just, you know, going for it. And that did help me get there because Dennis was very encouraging. He was a great mentor and he really steered me in the right direction and kept telling me, you know, come on down, come down and work here. And when I felt like I was finally ready, I did. And, and uh, he was just, he was great. So anyways, so there's, there's that. And, and, so, and our time is up. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're just getting started. <laughs> I, I mean, so, I mean, you, you've done, you've been animate, you know, the animation supervisor, or director for so many, you know, major films, quality films, like Iron Man, you know, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, you know, Super 8, one of my favorites, uh, you know, Pacific Rim, like just great visual movies that really, like, the you know, the visual, the animation is a part of the greatness of those movies. So, I'm, but what what is, like, it's one of those terms that just kind of scrolls by, you know, in the after credits, what is an animation supervisor? Like, what, yeah. what does that entail? Yeah, sure. So um, every studio is a little different, but this generally holds true across most of the big visual effects studios. So you've got 
a project that comes in. So I work, I work at Industrial Light Mag. So we've got some project that comes in because we don't just do, as you just mentioned, we don't just do Lucasfilm Star Wars projects. We do projects for any studio that comes in. So, um, so something like Pacific Rim comes in. On a project, there'll always be a visual effects supervisor. And that's on our, you know, within ILM, that's the creative leadership for the project. And then there'll also always be a visual effects producer who is, of course, is in, involved with budget and schedule and all that and, and deals with the studio, of course, on those issues. Um, but then if a project is has a lot of animation, meaning creatures, dinosaurs, robots, uh, or even machines like transformers, but even like helicopters, planes, tanks, uh, vehicles that for some reason need to be CG, then there'll be someone like me on the project, an animation supervisor. So at its broadest, I'd say our focus is on things that move. <laughs> um, but I would say more often than not, that involves performance of some kind. Again, a creature or a monster or an animal or, you know, that kind of thing or a bunch of them. Um, and um, and then at ILM, at least, th those three, the video effects supervisor, the visual effects supervisor, the animation supervisor, and the visual effects producer form the leadership for the show. And we have our teams that we supervise. And so in my case, I'm supervising the animators. I mean, I also weigh in on modeling and texturing and all those things when yeah. we're talking about things that we are then going to animate. Um, because, you know, it might be that they're modeling the creature and I might get concerned that well, the legs look a little short for some of the action that we have planned for it. So let's talk about that and that sort of thing. But the main focus of my attention comes once the sequences have been shot and edited and turned over to us, you know, and the director has said, okay, the dinosaur goes into this shot and, it, and it's chasing these people here who are pretending to run from something that's not there. But I needed to get over here where this car explodes, you know, 30 frames later because it, the car is supposed to explode because the dinosaur stepped on it or whatever, right? So we get a turnover like that. And um, and I and my job is to cast shots with the animators. Um, you know, I'll know that certain animators are good with certain things and and not so certain, not so good with others. So I'm casting shots to animators, um, giving them groups of shots. Then I give them feedback. I present the work to the director uh, when I think it's ready, and I you know receive the director's feedback. And that's basically the job. The other part of the job that's less obvious, I'd say, is getting to know directors. Um, because, and it's one of my favorite parts of the job, honestly, is is when I'm working for a director I've never worked with before, you know, certainly in early meetings, you know, doing a lot of listening, trying to pick up what their vision is for the project, um, but also hanging out with them on set as much as I'm yeah. able to. Um, and and again, not talking a lot. I try, to, I try to listen a lot more than I talk so I can get a feel for what makes them laugh? What makes them angry? How they communicate with their creative partners? Like when the DP comes over and they have a quick discussion about something, I'm always trying to, you know, not in a creepy way, but but kind of hover around those conversations. <laughs> and 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 conversations with actors are gold. Um, those are more tricky though because sometimes those can be quite sensitive, and so you have to yeah. be, you have to you know understand that. But um, but it's a great part of the job, and and. Um, and, you know, so the job is just to figure out what the director needs and figure out the best way to get it done uh, in terms of these creatures and things. And it's it's a lot of fun because it straddles, sometimes straddles acting choices. You know, it's not always just about action and right. explosions and stuff. Some, some of these creatures really need to have sort of acting moments. And, um, oh. and, and that's a fun yeah. kind of place to be. And 
and and even better is sometimes when we're actually working with an actor on the creature. So Bill Nighy in the in the second and third Davy Jones films, or Alan Tudyk in Rogue One playing uh, K2SO. <laughs> Those are really yeah. fun too, because uh, yeah. you, you're kind of partnering with an actor. So anyway, so that's kind of a messy uh, description of what I did. No, it, it it's a it's a great description, and it makes it puts things a lot you know for lame and people just regular people like us. Um, it makes sense. Uh, what what led you down that path of becoming an animation director? Because obviously, being a director, you've worked your way up the line in terms of you are managing and over you know supervising animators, um, kind of like your direct reports. But like, what put you on that path? And when you realize like this is something that I want to do, it's something that I'm good at um, to get where you are right now. Yeah, I mean, my story is pretty similar to a lot of visual effects folks, which is to say there was some movie that clicked with me at an early age. And in my case, um, it actually was well before Star Wars. I, I saw the original King Kong on TV as a rerun when I was maybe six or seven, living in Southern California. I saw it on TV and I was so angry at the treatment that Kong received <laughs> that I, my mom helped my mother helped me write a letter, a protest, which, which we sent to the local TV station who I held responsible for this because I didn't really understand how everything worked then. And uh, I don't even know if she mailed it, but she helped me write it and uh, she assured me she mailed it. But, um, but I also, that I started getting fascinated with how they do that. And Fortunately, because this was obviously the pre-internet era, uh, there were two really good books at the time, right at that point in time. There's one was called Making of King Kong. The other one was called The Girl and the Hairy Paw. And they were big, I don't know, coffee table, but they were sort of large format books with lots of pictures and descriptions of how stop motion worked and the fact that it was a little 18 inch puppet and all this kind of thing. So that really just got fired my imagination. Of course, I discovered Ray Harryhausen films. And my brother and I were already very keen on, oh, like the classic universal horror films of, you know, Frankenstein and, and the mummy and Dracula yeah. and werewolf. And so it kind of dovetailed with that interest. And I was also a big, I became a huge Godzilla fan, even though that was a guy in a rubber suit, not stop motion. I still just dug the heck out of it. I was a massive Godzilla fan. So that all sort of was going around in my brain. And I got a few years later, I, a teacher that I had gifted me a Super 8 camera that they weren't using and I started making stop motion films. And um, and then Star Wars came out. And like I said, it kind of, it, it broadened my interest from just stop motion to, you know, how did they do Luke's lightsaber? How did they do his landscape? Yeah. How did they do the spaceship shots? How did they do those, like uh, uh, Obi-Wan turning off the, the tractor beam over this seemingly infinite chasm inside the Death Star, you know, all that stuff. And I got my hands on um, a magazine. Again, this is pre-internet and it's even pre-Cinefix, but there was a really excellent, the first really good uh, behind the scenes article I ever read, you know, like in a magazine about a movie was a big double issue that Cinefantastique, this magazine that was around then did on Star Wars and Close Encounter because they both came out the same summer, which is kind of mind blowing. Wow, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so they did this big double issue just on the visual effects. And one of the things that was cool about it is they interviewed a lot of people on the crew. And one of the people they interviewed was this guy, Adam Beckett. And Adam Beckett had been in charge of the, all the animated effects on Star Wars. So for instance, something that really caught my eye was when the Jawas zap R2-D2 and all those little blue electrical arcs <laughs> crawl all over him. 
that really caught my eye. And he talked about that. And he also mentioned that he had gone to the California Institute of the Arts. So that I was like, all right, well, then I'm going to go there. <laughs> and so it kind of set. that's really more than anything what set me on my path. And I was very lucky. I did get accepted. Um, I didn't end up staying because as much as I loved it, and I really loved it there, I was terrified of the um, tuition, the, the mounting cost. And mm. which is something I think a lot of people can identify with now as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And this was, you know, 82 and Reagan was not doing us any favors. And uh, like almost all my tuition was being paid for with loans because my folks didn't have the money to just pay for it outright. And I certainly didn't. You preach so, so far right now, Al. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I left after the first year and spent the next almost 10 years worrying over that decision, although it eventually did end up working out. But I went back up to Portland and I worked at one little shop doing kind of um, sort of low budget local advertising, but the techniques we were using were, were stuff I was interested in at the time, this kind of motion graphics effects work, even though it was like for crappy local advertising, but I was learning and it was a job. And then I had a buddy that was working across town at this place I'd mentioned earlier, Will Vittens. And the California Raisins thing was blowing up and they were hiring. And he's like, you used to do stop motion. Come on, you'll love it. We're doing <laughs> national ads. It's You'll get paid better, you know, whatever. So I, uh, I, I, I applied there and got, got hired. And, and that's what really, that's when things started to finally kind of click. I was finally starting to get a decent paycheck and I was working on stuff that had, you know, a bigger audience, even you know, right. TV commercials and some, we did a few half hour specials as well. But that's when I really started thinking, okay, I can leverage this towards a, career at ILM. I just got to keep working here a little, build up a good demo reel of stop motion animation shop. And I had a few other skills that I thought could be useful at ILM that I developed by then. Um, and then Jurassic Park came out and I thought, oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to do this stuff with puppets in, anymore in stop motion. They're going to do it with computer graphics. And I don't know anything about computer graphics. So I guess I'm stuck up here doing mud puppets for the rest of my life. That's what we call it. Mud puppets. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, and this is turning into a really long answer, but this, this, this I do want to mention one thing in this. So the next thing that happened to me is something I'll be eternally grateful for because it's, it is in fact not something that I, where I took a shot. Um, this was dumb luck, although as they say, um, you know, luck, what is it? Uh, something about luck meeting luck preparation. Favors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'd like to think at least I had prepared myself for this moment. But basically what I didn't understand at the time was that companies like Industrial Light Magic, who had just done Jurassic Park, and Pixar, who was doing Toy Story, um, you know, they didn't have a worldwide network of great animation schools churning out super talented CG animators back then, right? So they were having to draw, when they needed animators, they were having to draw them from traditional animation, like people who had done cell animation or people who had done stop, anim stop motion animation like me. But I didn't realize that was going on. I figured it was a bunch of people in lab coats, you know, with computer science degrees doing this stuff. <laughs> and um, Pixar was way behind on Toy Story and they needed more animators. And there was a guy there at the time named Mike Belzer. And Mike had come from the stop motion community in the Bay Area, but he was now working at Pixar. So he started putting out feelers to people he knew in the stop motion world. And one of them was, uh, one of our very talented directing animators at Vittens, um, Teresa Drilling. And she had no interest in moving into CG, but she knew that I was trying to figure out how to make that leap and get, you know, take the uh, next step. 
So she said, hey, you should send down a tape. Apparently, they don't care if you even know how to turn on a computer as long as you know how to animate characters. <laughs> that's what they that's what they prize, you know. So I I sent down a reel that, you know, I could never get hired with there now. But at the time, they were apparently desperate. And uh, and that was it. That was like a the super lucky thing. And I guess I just had enough decent character animation on my reel that that uh, it got me in the door. And I, And the thing is, I actually ended up loving it. You know, because I knew other stop motion folks who tried it because, you know, it was the next big thing and it was it was a gig and not all that. But they kind of hated it and they went and ended up going back to stop motion. But I really dug it. I liked it. So that was that was massive for me anyway. So then I, I worked on Toy Story and then Toy Story ended. And then, you know, it was announced that that Lucasfilm would be making more Star Wars films and that ILM was ramping up on the sequel to Jurassic Park, the film that I I thought would kill my career. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I got to send it real over now. Now's my, now's the time. And, and, and Dennis was still, Muran, who I mentioned earlier, was still encouraging me. And so I finally sent my tape to, to ILM now that I had like Toy Story shots on it. And um, that got me in the door. And uh, here I am. You, you, you said something that I, I, I was going to ask you. And so I'm going to ask you it now. Um, and it's, it's just regards to the transition in regards to technology and yeah. everything. And how has that that transition in terms of, you know, it's, I don't I don't want to assume that being like working in animation is almost like a, a young person game, but like you have to obviously know your shit, right? Like, excuse, excuse the French, like you have to know how to do things. And so how has that transition, or I mean, right now you're a director, but how was that transition for you from stop you know stop animation to potentially like cgi and, and things like that as as technology became better and improved over the years yeah i think for me it was i was very lucky and, and and i'll explain why in a second but for a lot of people it was really hard like the transition from what we now call practical effects or photo optical effects or analog effects to the digital world which which happened very very quickly now it, it wasn't quite the overnight thing that it seems like now, like if Jurassic Park happened and suddenly everything was digital, but very nearly. But, you know, there were, had been a slow ramp up where, oh, in the mid 80s, there was a film com- called Young Sherlock Holmes that had a mm-hmm. stained glass night that was CG. Um, and then there was the abyss with the water tentacle. Yeah. And there was yeah. a bunch of effects work in T2 that was groundbreaking. Well, and course. there were other examples. Those are just ILM examples, but there were other examples, you know, Tron, uh, uh, Last Starfighter, et cetera. And but Jurassic Park comes along and that was really the tipping point, right? And yes. I visited ILM. Uh, so, you know, I had met Dennis and he'd said, you know, if you're ever down in the air, give me a shout, give me a tour. And, and so a couple of years after I'd met him in Portland, I was on my way to Santa Barbara for a friend's wedding. And I called Dennis ahead of time and said, hey, I'm going to pass through. Would you mind if I stop in? And he's like, sure. And it was right when they were making Jurassic Park. And uh, so he gave me the tour and that was my first look at, you know, Willy Wonka's factory like that was, yeah, that was my yeah. my internet I was, I was like the whole day I was like I don't think my feet were touching the ground you know I was just vibrating the whole time and um but when I was there a lot of the old school visual effects equipment because I was a complete nerd about visual effects you have to understand from yeah. you know, before Star Wars but certainly after Star Wars and especially for ILM so I understood all the from reading articles and you know anything I could get my hands on I had a pretty good outsiders grasp of the various specialized optical printers and different things they had there 
and it was all there, right? And I, he took me around. I got to see it. And like, oh my god, well, there's that thing, and there's that thing I've read about. And, oh, that's amazing. That was around '92. And when I came back to work at ILM as an employee, four and a half years later, all that stuff was gone. It was all desks with computers on them, which is a pretty quick transition if you think about it. And that means that there were probably a lot of people there that either had to figure out how to make themselves valuable in the new yeah. world or retire or move on or do something else. And that had to be super wrenching. And I missed all that, right? I was still a bit in, as all that was happening. Um, but what was lucky for me, and I, and I was talking about this earlier where there were stop motion folks who made the, who, you know, came to Pixar to work or, or other companies doing CG animation and eventually just went back to stop motion because that's what they love. They just, they love that process. I wasn't that married to process. I was a lot more interested in what ends up on screen. So I was excited about this new future and this new technology of computer animation. And that's why for me, the transition was great. Like it was an exciting, positive time in my life. I mean, I had to learn new things, but I was really into it and, and happy to be doing it. I felt super lucky. Whereas, you know, I knew some other folks who were like, oh my God, this future is so bleak. I remember one stop motion animator, it might've been Anthony Scott. He, was, he said that, or Tim Hiddle was one of these guys that was, you know, really fantastic stop motion animator. And they said, you know, animating in the computer is like animating with boxing gloves on. And these, you know, these are people who are very into the fact that they're using their hands to tactilely do the animation, right. To touch the puppet. Yeah. And so right. for them to say, you know, it feels like animating with boxing gloves on. I was like, Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> but for my, for my case, I, I loved it. And, and there were also some things that part of my job at Vinton's, I was a character animator, but also, I ran because it was something that was interested, interesting to me. I sort of made it my business to run a lot of the motion control gear there. And motion control is, it's a, it's a sort of a, it's sort of like those robots you see in, in car factories, except instead of a welder at the end of it or a drill or something, it's a camera. Um, and back in those days, it was even less slick than that. It was sort of like a carriage on a track with a tower yeah. and an arm with a pan and tilt head, but it's all motorized. And, it's run by a little PC computer running this software that was super arcane and specific. And while I didn't know anything about computers, I did know how to run that particular program and I knew how to do motion control photography. When I got into character animation at Pixar, animating characters, I realized that just the way the software worked and the way the process worked was very similar to programming one of these motion control rigs to do a specific move. Cause you would, you know, you drive the carriage down to the end of the track, you'd raise the boom up, you'd set the pan and tilt until the camera's looking exactly where you want it. And you lock all those values into the computer. And then you'd say, okay, two seconds later in the shot, I want the camera at the end of, other end of the track, down low, tilted up, pan to the left. And you set all those values. And connecting those two positions were what we call splines, these sort of curves that describe the movement of, for instance, how much, how many degrees of pan there were over those that number of frames or how many degrees wow. of tilt. And that, that all made sense to me. So then when I was animating a character, I realized, oh, this is the same thing. I mean, mm. the character is the motion control rig. I move the wrist up, you know, six inches higher in space and extend the arm out eight inches and rotate the hand around such and set, set all those values in the computer. Anyways, that's a bit boring, but it, it, it was another um, 
sort of stroke of luck for me because I, I, you know, as I sat down very nervously on my first day at Pixar to start animating, uh, I was like, oh, wait, I, I kind of get how this works. Some, I, you know, at random, quite randomly, I have this experience in my background that actually serves me in this moment. So that was, that was helpful. I had a dream. Well, I had a, I had a dream though. The day I, I packed fully truck, packed the moving truck in Portland. And the next morning I was going to begin my drive down to the Bay area to, to start my job at Pixar. That night I had a dream <laughs> that I walked into Pixar and they're like, Oh great. You're here. Awesome. Come with us. And they take me to this room and there's a table in the middle of the room and the walls are lined with, you know, like Metro shelves or wire racks or whatever with bins full of like one of them has motherboards and one of them has, computer screens and one of them power supplies. And they're like, great, assemble your computer and we'll be back in just a few minutes. And I'm like, oh, I think there's been a mistake. I don't, and they like closed the doors. <laughs> it was like this super intense stress dream. Uh, fortunately, that's not what actually happened when I got there. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. And you know, I've worked in IT for, I've worked in IT for 15 years and it's it seems more daunting than it actually is. I mean, it's hard work, but it's like once you get in it, it's like, oh, okay, like I got this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, absolutely, absolutely. But you talked earlier about uh, using your animation and how you have to integrate actual acting into your, your your animation. So we have to fast forward to my little man, man, I think, Groku. Grogu, yeah. yep, or also known as Baby Yoda, like <laughs> I mean, who's captured the hearts of everybody. I mean, literally, I, I know you can't really go into season two of Mandalorian, but like literally, I just sat down with my wife. She hadn't seen the final of uh, the finale of uh, you know Mandalorian season two yet. Yeah, she was in there just dripping tears. <laughs> I mean, this this little thing has captured the hearts of America, and it's just amazing because it's it's not real. It, but it, it, it had me crying too. It's insane. It, 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 it not even captured the hearts of America. Like it's captured hearts of people who are not even connected or like Star Wars. Like right, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so how? Like hell? How? How do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I uh, when season one was gearing up, I wasn't on it right from the very very beginning. But then uh, a project, I had just finished a project and um, and so they, they, I just got a call from, you know, at, at ILM from one of the producers saying, hey, we're, we, you know, we're getting this season one started on this Mandalorian show. You're, you know, you're aware of it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've been hearing about it. And, and I'd worked with John Favreau on uh, Iron Man. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, John was, was asking that, you know, if you could maybe like sit in on some meetings and stuff, because we've got this little character and you know, we're still in the design phase, but we just kind of want to get your thoughts on it. So that's how it started. It wasn't necessarily like, this is your next project, you're going to do this, which mm. is often how it starts. But in this case, it didn't. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Happy, happy to. I, I love John. I'm happy to pitch in. So we had, you know, I was in a few meetings about it and I was giving my thoughts about this and that. And um, <laughs> and then I was in more meetings and then it was in more meetings. And then it was like, oh, by the way, this is, yeah, you're doing this now. You're going to be the... <laughs> <laughs> so like, oh okay and uh but it was great and and john and i as i said we we clicked already because we'd had a really good experience together on iron man and we got along great and um 
so uh, you know there was a lot of thought going into this little character but you know just the nature of production generally and especially i think with tv stuff although this is my first uh, experience with an episodic thing but you know there's a lot of uh rushing uh, as you approach the beginning of shooting right and we so we were trying to get our this little character sorted out and so what that meant though is that um you know once they had artwork from doug chang doug chang runs the lucasfilm art department and once doug's group had uh artwork that was really kind of in the zone like okay we think this is it but it's still just 2d artwork then um and I, maybe they'd done some maquettes some little sculpts maquettes but really then it went to legacy effects and legacy effects is the company that built the puppet version of, of Baby Yoda. Um, and Legacy FX, at one time it was called Stan Winston Studios and Stan oh. was one of the giants of, of that, of, you know, practical makeup, animatronic, right. of the dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, et cetera. Um, and, it, it's in, and then uh, Stan passed, um, sadly, and the company's now called Legacy FX, but it's his legacy is really what that oh. means. And, uh, and so they began work on, on the puppet version because they had, you know, it's like, well, first day of shooting is here. We need this much time. We're going to get to work on it. So in parallel, we were building the CG version of him because we knew that in some case, you know, we didn't know what the breakdown was going to be. You, you kind of never know at the beginning, but how much of it's going to be the puppet, how much of it's going to be computer generated. So we, but we knew we'd need both. So we started work on ours and we would, we were trying to, you know, make sure ours look like theirs and et cetera. Um, and so then shooting started and there was a, a period of time of everyone kind of finding out how this was working, right? Because on some shows you can build a, a practical version of something and it just kind of end up not working that well and you end up replacing it all with CG or most of it. On other shows, the animatronic or the practical version works great and you do very little digital stuff. Maybe you're just painting out rods or puppeteers or something like that. So you never know. And so we're, we're going into this and John is, you know, John's very eager to use the puppet as much as possible, but he just wants to make sure we put the best foot forward on our first few shots. So we launch right into animating the very first time you see him, that moment when his little hand pulls the blanket down and you see his little face in there. And I was shot with a puppet, but because it was a very important moment and we wanted to be able to kind of iterate on it, you know, really like tweak it and change it and try different things and all that. We ended up going CG with that shot just so we could experiment basically with it. And we learned a lot. And while we were learning on that shot, they were also continuing to shoot first unit with the puppet and learning what, what the puppet really did well, which is a lot of things as it turned out. In fact, the puppet really, now looking back on it, the puppet does the heavy lifting for the character. Mm -hmm. And anything we did in CG was really an effort to just extend the capabilities a little bit but not so much that anyone ever went, oh, wait, that that's that feels different from what I was just seeing. Like, hopefully people don't know what technique they're looking at. No, um, no, not, not, but, not at all. Oh, good, good. But John, and so we did, the, like on season one, we ended up doing a few key moments, again, because it was early in the process and we wanted to be able to kind of fuss and experiment with it. So one was those first few shots. Another moment is the first time the baby uses the force on the um, mud horn his little hands extended and his eyes are closed. So that was CG. Um, and then some other things like when he's walking, for instance, when he and Grogu are walking into town in episode four, where they're going to meet Cara Dune for the first time in the, on Sorgan. And um, 
or when he's eating frogs, things like that. Things are kind of hard for the puppet to do. And, oh, oh, so the classic, you know, baby Yoda sipping coffee. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was that was CG. <laughs> but with that one, actually, that one was the puppet. They, they, oh, they okay. make a good ring. So when he's like sipping his little broth bowl or whatever it is, yeah, yeah, that yeah, was, that yeah. Was the and um, so most of the time it's the puppet. Um, but here's but John did something very smart, and um, and, and because here's what quite often happens on a, on a movie set where you've got a uh, some kind of puppet character, but some of the time it's going to be CG, and you've planned some action that the character's supposed to do. It's supposed to walk from here to there and climb into its chair and pick up a prop or something. And you get there on the day, and for whatever reason, it it's let's say it's difficult for the puppet to do. Um, an approach that often happens because you know you've got all this crew standing around waiting to shoot and it's expensive is to go okay well yank the puppet out and we'll shoot a clean plate and we'll do it in post john was like no let's not do that let's um let's find out something the puppet can do let's rework the, the blocking here and figure out something that is good for the puppet and i think that has been the the main key to making him like really work. Cause we all recognized that the puppet was working. He looked great on film. People loved him, even in person. You know, the minute they pick him up, they're doing that little bounce thing that you do when you pick up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it was like automatic. And um, so he was very canny about that. And he was like, you know, this is really working. So let's cut with the grain. Let's find uh, ways to show off the puppet instead of trying to make it do things that it can't do or whatever. Oh, love that. Um, and so we ended up, we did a fair amount of work in CG on season one, again, just because, you know, we were figuring out where we're at. And we did less, um, less CG work, but still some um, on season two, because I think everyone was figuring out what the puppet was good at. The puppeteers were getting better and better and better. And they're, you know, the legacy puppeteers are amazing. And, um, and the directors were all sort of figuring out, like, how to get the best out of the puppet. So it's really great. It's been it's been super fun, and you know we continue to pepper in our our CG Baby Yoda shots. Hopefully, it's you know without anyone noticing here and there, and he he's good fun. But it was fun to help. It was fun to be in the mix in figuring that out. And John and I had a lot of conversations about, um, you know, like Mando never treats Baby uh, Grogu as as a cute baby. Right. A little bit in season two. There's a few little places now that they've bonded where right. you might hear Mando laugh or something, which is like weird. Like, well, did he just laugh? <laughs> but, but um, you know, he it's usually a little bit more of a tough relationship. And so we talked about films that had that kind of thing in it, like Paper Moon, which is one of my favorite films. And Ryan and Tatum O'Neill are in that. And, and yeah. you know, he doesn't treat her like the cute, adorable little girl that she is. They fit, they have an almost adversarial um uh, connection which Mando and Baby it's not adversarial but he's you know he doesn't coo over him he just kind of like get in your seat and you know don't touch that and, you know <laughs> that kind of thing and uh, so we talked a lot about that and and then there were some other things too like I initially thought that the baby's eyes should have more um, sclera you know the white of the eye so that yeah. when, when you look to one side or the other in in conventional cartoon character design terms it's one of the things we, we call appeal like something that just makes it look so cute and lovable and john was like no i mean a little bit's okay and there is a little if you look yeah. in some shots you'll see when he really looks to one side of the other you see a little bit but he's like i, I kind of like the eyes big and dark so that he's a little more like one of those 
weird little animals that are cute, but also a little unsettling and weird. So like a, like a tarsier or a bush baby or something. There's different, you know, those little from Madagascar, those little fuzzy animals with like huge eyes. Yes, 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 yes. I know what you're yeah. talking about, yeah. And so he kind of wanted that feeling again more than a conventionally cute thing and john loves the idea that this thing will eat any disgusting thing that's in front of it <laughs> which is again it's sort of counterintuitive but it really works it really works <laughs> um so we're we're on talking about the mandalorian i being that we know we can't talk too much about season two i will ask you this going back to season one uh one of my favorite gifts is the like i don't even know what movie it's from but when antonio banderas is like at a computer and he's just like it's like Ooh, that's that's the one like like just that expression of just like this is it like this is perfection as the animation director what moment from season one what scene or it doesn't have to be any scene that just left you with that like you just like stepped away from the computer and you just kind of gave yourself the pat on the back like yes like that's that shit like that's awesome <laughs> um there's a few of them that i really dig uh i really like the shootout with ig11 in the first episode yes oh, yes um i think that came out really great um uh he's just because he's like goofy looking you know he's got that stiff-legged tin toy robot walk but then when he starts shooting he's just shooting every direction <laughs> that, you know, it's amazing um, so I love that. Uh, I'm really, really proud of the mud horn sequence. I think he looks really physical and real and the mud looks real, like everything. I just super happy with that sequence. Um, I really am psyched that we went to the extent of um, building a miniature of the Razor Crest and shooting mm. it like a like an old school miniature motion control yes. style. Um, wow. And it, it, it it's not every shot. Um, like we didn't, for instance, we didn't put working landing gear in it. So when you see it landing and taking off, that's CG and stuff. But um, but we did quite a few shots with the miniature. Um, and that was really, that was fun. And it wasn't just fun in a sort of like, well, we don't have to do this, but it's fun nostalgia. It actually ended up being a really useful, creative path to go down to get that, the, that ship feeling like a real thing. Because for one thing, it doesn't... Um, there aren't other Star Wars spaceships that look like it. Like Padme's ship in the prequels is right. super chrome. Yeah. The Falcon is super matte, kind of tan, matte colored. And the, the crest is sort of in between. It's kind of like dirty, scratched up brushed aluminum yes. or something, aircraft yes. aluminum. So it helped us to build a model and actually look at that in real light. And then further to actually shoot it with a motion control rig and have all the limitations of that. And anyway, so that was that was super fun. Um, I'm trying to think back because you know I've been through two whole seasons now. <laughs> I know, maybe. It's all blurred together. And I think like what's uh, let's see, for Sorgan, um, Sorgan was fun. It, it, it from an animation standpoint, it wasn't as big for us because it was more about people. Oh, actually, I take it back. On Sorgan, we had the whole ATST attack yeah. in the forest. Yeah. Yes. Because I guess I love that thing. We got to do a tiny bit of ATST stuff in Rogue One. And I really, I think we all wanted to do more of it, um, but it just didn't fit in the story and the time of that, you know, the length of that film and stuff to have more of it. But so I was psyched to get to do um, a whole bunch of it in in, uh, yeah. in that episode. So that was great fun. The, the whole um, 
TIE Fighter thing with Moff Gideon and Mando in the final episode oh, was great. Yeah. That was super fun. Um, yeah, it was a good season. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, one thing we started on um, really early and then it just lingered through almost the whole season, it felt like, was the fight between IG-11 and the two scout troopers on their bikes. It's not even a fight. He just, like, <laughs> takes them out. But we started in on that early and then – and then it would kind of get put aside periodically to kind of tackle other things. And we revisit it. We try some new approaches, <laughs> but it took a long time to get that right. Cause they wanted, you know, John and, and Taika both wanted almost, uh, you know, almost cartoonish action. Like when he's pile driving the guy's head, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and yeah. Works to the bike and stuff. But you know, then they always, then we keep wanting to rein it back. So it doesn't feel completely, animated and hopefully a little real and you know it was just a really hard balance to, to strike but um uh this guy ken Steele was my anim soup on that uh sequence he just did a great job on it and it came out great so that, that was fun that was super fun yeah, yeah. lots I'm of good you... thanks for asking me that lots of good memories i've been so up to my eyeballs in season two i hadn't thought right, a while right. About... yeah and i'm I mean... glad and i'm glad no no go ahead it's all right no, I'm just saying I was glad you mentioned that AT, ATS because I felt like that episode where that came out, the show had already been good, but that really elevated it to like, wow, this is a Star Wars show. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this is Star Wars. Like, and it just it really started to elevate. Yeah, it's really started to tap into that. Yeah. You know, those feelings that we have. But I wanted to ask you real quick. Um, uh, you know, you, you worked on Rogue One. Uh, which is, you know, I think widely considered one of the best, uh, one of the best Star Wars, you know, movies since the prequels, at least. Uh, some, you know, some say since the originals. Um, so, but I wanted to ask you, like, I, I text Adam all the time, like, one of my favorite scenes is just the uh, the Death Star with the, you know, half powerful, like, wasn't as powerful. Yeah. Oh, explode that explosion on the planet. The planet, oh my! I was like, God. that was one of the most beautiful explosions I've ever seen on film. It was just so <laughs> gorgeous. Uh, did you guys have anything to do with that? <laughs> oh yeah, you know that was a giant pain in the butt. But it was, um, but I love it too. I love that whole scene because it's, it's got a great. Um, I don't sound too pretentious, but it's got a great emotional underpinning because oh yeah, Jin is in the middle of seeing this hologram message from her father, who she hasn't seen since she was little, and she thought she was dead, and etc. And he, she's finally getting the download from her dad in this super emotional way. Meanwhile, you know, Krennic is firing this half-powered blast into the city miles away, which is going to soon engulf. Anyways, I so that scene even in the very earliest stages when it was just storyboards or previs, I remember getting goosebumps and thinking, this is great. Yeah, like, I love yeah. the whole, how this all comes together. So then, and then, yeah, executing it was terrifically difficult. We had, um, this guy, Mo and Leo was our visual effects soup at our London studio. Um, and they did the lion's share of the work of, uh, you know, those biggest shots of the, the earth being sort of ripped apart and coming at them at a, as a big wave. And, and everything and just the, the beauty of it the way it be, turns into an eclipse uh of yeah. a thing and then the, the beam fires and yeah i love that sequence i i just adore it and i like oh. how that it's 
K2 that comes sweeping in with the ship and he's like, oh. what is it? there's a problem with the horizon. There is no horizon. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, it's a long way from, you know, blowing up Alderaan, you know, you know, yeah, it's just come a long way from that. It's like, and, and I think, I think I remember watching it and thinking like we all saw a new hope. Alderaan got blown up. Boom. It's gone. But to see that, like, from being on the planet and how it looks, it was, oh, just, it was a marvel. It was a complete marvel. Um, Gareth was really good with um, taking the time to, and I think, uh, I think in, a, in his perfect, you know, version of the film, there probably would have been more of this, but he, you know, capturing the sort of, the sense of, like, the daily lives of, of all these people you see in the marketplace like he, yeah. he went around shooting lots of great b-roll of like little kids playing against a wall and stuff like wow. that it, it didn't make the final cut just because you know you've got at some point you've got to make decisions and yeah. get into a certain order but you know there is that moment where Jin rescues that little girl from the firefight when the tank's about to explode and if you stop and think about it it's like well that was all in vain because yeah oh, and it's kind of, you know, man, that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, it's pretty dark stuff for Star Wars, you know, and, and it's not, I mean, you know, George had Anakin, you know, going to the nursery, <laughs> the preschool and, yeah. you know, it, there have been other, <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was definitely in that vein of like, there are consequences, you know, this stuff, it's not just, um, you know, a visual effect shot. It's like there's a whole human story behind it, which I thought was great. That's one of the things I loved about Garrett's vision for that film. And his, it's, it's a, it's a, I believe what the four year anniversary was last week. I saw on Twitter, and you know, someone had just posted some some shots from the film, and it's such a visually beautiful film. Like, yeah, just beautiful. I'm, I, you know, and I've said this before. I, if I just try to look at it completely from the outside if i could have picked well here's the thing so when it was announced that you know uh lucasfilm is going to be making more star wars films and i'd worked on the prequels you know but it had been a long time since any of us had a crack at you know star wars so when that was announced i was telling everybody at island that i could that would listen that you know oh, i gotta be on that you know i want to work on that but it 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 transpired that the, the director of the first of the sequels was J.J. Abrams and J.J. had a, a relationship already with some folks at ILM because of past projects that he'd worked with them on, like the Trek films and stuff. So I knew that that left me out of that project because I knew who the people were going to be on it. And that's fine. That's that's the way things work. Um, but then John Knoll, who I'd worked with on a bunch of films with um, and continue to work with him, I'm working on a couple of projects with him now, he pitched this idea for Rogue One. And so number one, he's like, you know, one of my best friends and I was excited for him. Um, but also it really tickled me that sort of one of our own had, you know, had the idea for this film. And so, you know, he's like, hi, well, you gotta be on it. I'm like, yeah, of course. And so it was, again, it was one of those one door opens and another door closes. Cause if I'd been locked into uh, Force Awakens, I think it would have overlapped with Rogue One in a way where I couldn't have done it. And so I, from the outside, looking back, I somehow, super dumb luck, ended up on the two Star Wars projects of, of recent years that I would have most wanted to have worked on 
you know, mm -hmm. just as an outsider, meaning Rogue One and Mandalorian. And a big part of that obviously is that they're in the timeline of the original trilogy, which is right. uh, closest to my heart. You know, one of them is immediately before, the other one's five years after. But also there's just the thing of working on John Knowles' project and also working on John Favreau's project. Oh. Those are also good connections for me and lucky. I feel like those are lucky talismans for me or something. So yeah, I, I'm super pleased to have worked on, on Rogue One. I, I just, I adore it. And I, I, I gotta tell you, like, I always, if, if we're kind of film, it's uh, nowadays with the streaming thing, I have to get this sort of fixed by watching reaction videos, which I really enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny because I was gonna ask you if you did that. Yeah. And so with film, Don't get me started. I, I would always go on um, opening weekend, you know, I just try to go out and see it with a regular audience so I could just gauge the, you know, hear the reaction. And I gotta tell you, it was the best on Rogue Week, Rogue One opening weekend because oh. you get toward the end and, um, oh. you know, Bodhi, Bodhi gets, spoilers, uh, Bodhi gets killed and then, uh, and then K2 gets killed and then Baz and Chira, Baz and, um, uh, what is it? Uh, it, I, it just, from, just from his perspective from Disney, like yeah. that was under Disney's, you know, Disney and, I remember watching that, and I for the film I thought it was perfect, but also I was like, "Man, this is this is Disney doing this." Like, <laughs> and you're, I just started looking around at the audience. I'm like, "Oh, they're starting to figure it out." And then, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Jen and Cassie and they're stumbling out on the beach, and I could hear people in the audience going, "No, no, mm. no, they're not. No." <laughs> that was that was super fun but also it was fun you know that sounds sort of sadistic but it was fun just feeling people reacting to that but also knowing that the vader scene was going to come up mm. seconds later <laughs> and just yeah. which really was just like just one of the most classic scenes ever just yeah i mean like it, it, i mean i know like i said you, i know you can't talk about season two but on that level of you know what, what you what people will see in the finale, just tapping into that, making oh, grown adults feel like little kids for just oh. a moment, and it's just it's just a giddiness that you know as adults we just go through. You know you're paying bills, you're living. You know it's different. It's a boring adult life. Just to tap into that kid feeling for just a second. Oh my god, it's priceless, man. It's it, priceless. It's, I. I, I DM'd how, like, I, I DM'd, I mean, he could speak to it, like, I DM'd him and said, like, thank you, like, for, for, for all of us, for that scene, like, I, I, I get emotional. No, it feels, it feels really good, and, and part for the Star Wars of it all, but also, I'll tell you, just in, in terms of visual effects, before, before Jurassic Park came out, if you showed somebody something that they was just, and, and including Jurassic Park, if you showed them something that they just couldn't understand how it could possibly be, like like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, yeah, you'd get this wow, this wow reaction, right? This just childlike wonder of like, what am I even looking at? What changed after that is that people had a little file folder in their brain that was marked. It was done in a computer so that yeah. any film yeah. after that they saw where it was just impossible imagery, they could... At, at the very least, even if they didn't understand how it was made, they could go, well, they do that in a computer. Exactly. And so getting that reaction, that just sort of like, whoa, reaction is um, 
in some ways it's a good thing because what's happened, it's harder with visual effects because you can't, you know, just putting a realistic dinosaur on the screen, you're going to do it. So that, but the good thing, a part of it is that it puts the pressure back on where it belongs, which is the ideas behind it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I got to tell you, being part of, uh, I'll be forever grateful for being part of this season of Mandalorian because that final episode, I've just, you know, I've seen it over and over again online and in reaction videos and stuff of people moved by it you know moved mm. in a in the star wars of it all but just generally and and that's down to just the construction of it and the iconography of star wars and the execution of it certainly but it's great fun to be part of that it really is because like i said we can't we can't get that that jolt from just a competently you know executed visual effect anymore exactly, exactly. but we can get it if the ideas are there and the heart is there and all that and then you then you really get it and it's great to be a part of that it's really good i just want to give a little shout out to, to peyton reed for yeah. for directing the episode like i know you know he he has a, a pretty extensive you know photography if you're an mcu fan um Ant-Man, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I feel like as MCU movies, they don't really get, the, like, they're not, you know, thought of as like, you know, whatever, like the- Wait, I know what you mean. The pantheon of like the MC, of MCU, but like, Peyton, <laughs> Mr. Reed said, listen, I got something for, for anyone who may have, you know, it was just, I was, it, just that whole episode, it just television perfection. I told Ryan, um, I texted Ryan after I watched it. Any medium, the TV, movie, like that was the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like the episode as a whole. Like, and I say that with no hyperbole. Like, I'm not exaggerating. I yeah, I dug working with. I never met him before, um, but we worked with him on both episode two and and the final episode of this season. And I thoroughly enjoyed working with that guy. And I'm a big fan of the Ant Man films. In fact, my favorite. Marvel films are the funnier films. Like, so the yeah. films, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Thor Ragnarok. Those Thor are my Ragnarok. Oh, yeah. Thor Ragnarok is yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, I enjoy the other films too, totally. I mean, I'm not down at Ragnarok, but just the ones that I click with the most of the funniest ones. So it was super fun working with him. I really dug it. And, you know, the final episode was really hard. A lot of hard work in that stuff, a lot of nail biter stuff that we worried about. I mean, if nothing else, just keeping the secrets that we needed to keep. Oh you know, my God. Especially in these last few weeks, that's when I really was like, come on, we just gotta, we could just keep it. Cause, and we did it with season one. We kept uh, Grogu under wraps um, mm. and you know, hats off to Disney because they could have sold a hell of a lot more uh, marketing, <laughs> marketing you know, merchandise. Yeah. yeah. If they had, if, if they had, you know, but they held it all back and did on them. And so we were in, you know, similar situation this year with the final episode of not wanting to um, to have anyone, you know, uh, get 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 the word out or leak it out. And you know, it was a nail biter. But I was so happy. I was like that, especially like midnight Thursday night, because when the episode dropped, I'm just oh like, man, I'm like scrolling Twitter, like what's what's no? Listen, <laughs> I mean, I, I was I was like I literally like told I was at my job and I was like, hey, I need to step out for a sec. And I'm sitting in the car watching the episode nine o'clock in the morning, you know, and you know, I, I'm just so appreciative of that because look, it's been a tough year. Like 2020 has kicked our ass. Oh man, so. Like just for just to have a moment of just enjoyment, just remove us from reality for a little minute yeah. and just enjoy something in a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago that has nothing to do with, you know, whatever's going on in America today. 
oh man, like you, you can't pay for that. You can't. No, pay it for is. That. It's good. It's a good thing. And by the way, I wanted to mention. You, know, you mentioned working in IT, and then just now you're talking about 2020. You know, obviously we had to do all the post production for season two from home. Oh, wow. uh, now we finished two weeks. Uh, finished shooting uh, about two weeks before everything in California went into lockdown. So that was fortunate. And that was just dumb luck. But um, what I wanted to mention is that uh, at ILM in the past, we've had, you know, some small number of folks who um, work from home for one reason or another. They're on maternity or paternity leave or whatever, or some, you know, special circumstance. But mostly people go into the facility and they have a desk there and they work. And so we had to send everybody home on the same day, all at once, and then have them all hitting the network remotely, you know, the next day. And, our, and I, I mentioned this just to say, IT folks are heroes. Like we never could have done it without, uh, you know, crew making it happen. And there was, you know, the first week there were a few little bumps and wrinkles because we never had everybody at home before, but man, they pulled it together and we, and we were able to kind of just get on with it. I was so impressed. Anyway, so I'm just saying hats off to IT professionals. <laughs> yeah, there were some long hours taking place. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Yeah. Uh, you, it, you you hit on a question that we, we brought up. We, Ryan and I had talked about. A couple of weeks ago, I tweeted um, when all this news regarding, like, the, like, casting com confirmations of Spider-Man 3 when that came out, you know, in terms of it potentially being a multiverse, I kind of just quote tweeted something. I said, I, I, I miss, and I, I'm, only, I'm only 33, but like I miss days of just not knowing, right? Like, and I, and I told Ryan, I said, I, like, imagine going to see Spider-Man 3 and then you realize like it's a multiverse and like all these people from like prior Spider-Man movies are in it, it would just blow your mind. But with it being 2020 and, you know, I'm following Deadline, Variety, like I, you know, it gets spoiled for me and it gets spoiled for a lot of us. And it's so funny because Ryan and I had this conversation after the, um, after the rescue as, you know, we knew, you know, the casting news about Ahsoka Tano came out um, Boba Fett came out, like all that was known prior yeah. to season two. Um, but it, it feels like there's always been something. So season one, the pilot, we, we get the, the Grogu reveal. Completely had no idea that was coming as fans, right? In season two, obviously we know what happens in the finale. Can you just speak to what goes into keeping that, especially season two, keeping that completely wrapped up in today's modern society where everything gets leaked. Like it's so impressive. It's really hard because, you know, film is collaborative. There's a ton of people on the crew and, you know, the vast proportion of them are dedicated and, and concerned about keeping those secrets and all that. But there's just so many eyes and ears around uh, on a project um, as well as a lot of people that are sort of outside of the main orbit. I mean, you've got actors, agents, and mm. people like that who may be like, well, I know I'm supposed to keep this quiet, but I'm really excited about my actor being involved in this project. Mm. So I'm going to find a way to get that word out there. And I don't, you know, I'm, that doesn't come from any specific knowledge of me. I'm just spitballing. But, and then you also have things like, if you if you decide to go forward with merchandise, you know you might have some toy company somewhere yep. or has a big trade show in Denmark or something, and they're 
their uh, little program for the trade show somehow gets scanned and put online yep. and everyone's like, oh, look, the character names and all that, you know, and that's just super hard to control. So, you know, Disney's been great um, by, you know, if they need to hold back mark merchandise, they've held it back and that kind of thing. And we went to all kinds of crazy lengths to keep the secret for the final episode of this season. And, you know, down the road at some point, I can talk about that. We can, you know, we, we should have a part two of this once, uh, you know, we're able to talk more about Oh, don't country. worry how, we will. <laughs> <laughs> but we went to, yeah, we went to all kinds of crazy things. Because you have to understand, there's not just, again, there's not just, there's filming, obviously, right? You've got a bunch of people involved with shooting, costumes, props, set deck, everything, right? That goes into that. And you've got post-production, you know, not just visual effects, but the sound. Then there's all, like, all the stuff that happens for the platform, like foreign language dubbing, for instance, for all the different mm. around the world. And it's like, how do you keep man secret? And, um, you know, somehow it worked. <laughs> 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 but I got it. You know, like I said, the last few weeks, especially, I was like, oh. and even on the day of, there was that thing where somehow or other the track names for the next Oh you know, yeah! They released the uh, the uh, you know the soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack by Ludwig. Yeah, and the and the soundtrack names for the next release leaked or leaked or I don't leaked or were just released or whatever. But on the final day, and people were just like trying to figure out what it all meant. Fortunately, those track names are pretty cryptic. Yes. You know, for instance, for the for the previous episode for the 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 one with Bill Burr. You know, there was a track name that was like brown eyes. It's like, well, that doesn't tell you anything. You know what I mean? Like, right. That mean if you even, if you haven't seen the episode, if you've seen yeah. it, you know. And even that, even the the finale, the rescue, that that moment's yeah. only referred to on the track as as a friend. Like that's it. That's all it's Yep. So that was like I heard because somebody messaged me and said, "Hey, there's some leaks." And I'm like, "Oh shit!" And I, you know, I looked and I'm like, "Oh, okay, it's all right. <laughs> it's not too bad." <laughs> Um, so yeah, but we'll yeah in some in our next uh, installment we'll um, I can get a little more detail about all the subterfuge that was required to make that <laughs> <laughs> happen. Um, but yeah, it's pretty. You know, the other thing about it for me was just uh, you know I'd never met Mark Hamill before, and to 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 finally um, get a chance to meet the guy in in the context of of you know shooting a scene that was related to that that character uh, that that you know was like extra special and mm. kind of blew my mind <laughs> all all of us all of yeah. us <laughs> uh well, just just legit uh you know adult tears that friday just just, ah, just streaming from my face and it was just it's it was it was so it was emotional it was, it was happy tears but then what what takes place, you know, at the very, you know, at the very end, it's like it's sad tears oh, because that Pedro Pascal. Oh, his his acting, like, can we give some love for Pedro's acting of having such little yeah. screen time with his mask off, but what he's able to do and act with just voice inflection and just oh, just it's a mar it was a marvel, just an <laughs> absolute marvel. Yeah, and he's uh, he's such a nice guy. I didn't. I don't know. I don't think I've even properly met him on Saturday, but I just, I follow him on Twitter and, and everything. And he's just, what a great guy. What a nice, uh, you know, he just seems like a great human being. So that's all awesome. Ryan, did you have anything else for, for Hal? 
No, no, we've we've abused him enough. It's it's it's. Hey, you you guys are supposed to hit me with a uh, football question. Oh, um, okay, yeah, you're right. Sorry, we it was like fuck football. What the fuck is Star Wars on this? <laughs> care about football right now, Al? Um, so obviously we are a hashtag safe Twitter podcast, so we do talk about um the New Orleans Saints extensively. Uh, so do you have a favorite football team? Like, like, do you are you? Do you follow it in anything like that? I, do, I don't follow a team religiously. If I had to pick one, it'd be the Niners only because I've lived, you know, most of my life now in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I know so many people who actually grew up here who are just so like they just identify with the Niners like as that's, you know, in a cultural way, like beyond just a sports team, just like mm-hmm. as a as a, like a San Francisco thing, even though they're- Yeah, it's, a, it's an institution, yeah. So, yeah. you know, if I was forced to pick a team that like I'm, I'm connected to, I would say it's it's the Niners, but but again, only in a sort of cultural San Franciscan sense, not so much as a hardcore sports fan or anything like that. Okay, that's fine. We're not, that's all, that's all we have. We're not, we're not gonna, <laughs> we're gonna talk about X's and, o, X's and O's, talk about player players, that, that's- that's fine. That's it. That's, we'll take it. Um, Hal, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I will say, don't don't tease our listeners and say that there's going to be a part two. And then we, do you say there's a part two that's going to happen? And we're gonna we're gonna do um, a part two. I did see you tweet today um, the logo for the Book of Boba Fett, which is set to drop on Disney Plus. Uh, next december like yep. next year december so i'm just asking i don't know if you're able to talk about it by as soon because you tweeted it does that mean that you're going to be working on that as well i don't want to jump to a conclusion <laughs> that i can't say yet okay okay, okay. i mean we'll, we'll see right. we'll see all right okay i respect right. that i respect it i respect it Stories. and i won't i'll leave it to you guys to like a, a part two of our conversation i'll leave it to you guys to you know promote that or describe that or, or, you know, reveal that at your, at your, uh, when you're ready. We will, well, with the holidays ramping up, once the holidays has, has cooled off, we will definitely touch base again in regards to getting part two when we can talk about a little more in regards to season two, kind of more in depth. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's been a pleasure now. Like I, I truly mean that. Uh, and yes. thank you so much for just, coming on and like you know just talk it was it was great like, like we, it, it went like an hour plus and I, I feel like we could have talked for more it was it was just great so uh, so, yeah. so you can follow how on twitter and on instagram uh, although his account is locked on instagram so he might not accept you but for sure follow how on twitter um at how uh hickle and yep. also i i wanted to say which I applaud you for is you use your platform in terms of speaking out uh, politically about a lot of the political shit that is completely wrong. Um, yeah. And I, I love it. Like I, how will be tweeting, he'll retweet. And I'm like, talk your shit. How like get him. So <laughs> I love it. I, I do um, <laughs> love to see people and, you know, that have any type of, quote unquote position in regards to whether it be entertainment or whatever, just any type of industry where they have a voice and using it. Uh, I love that. So I just wanted to give you props for that as well. I appreciate it. Much appreciated. So with that, we're going to get out of here. We officially concluded our first Star Wars episode. So it's not going to be our only Star Wars episode. Um, 
and we're just going to get out of here. And again, thanks so much for how for coming on with that. We're out. Peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.